If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 569. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, you get great deals on new and forthcoming courses when you're there. You can also purchase classes. And when you purchase classes, you keep this podcast free of charge. You help financially support the podcast. And it's a win-win because the classes are awesome. And you get that content, plus you keep this content going free of charge. So you essentially become a supporter of the Brian McClanahan Show by buying McClanahan Academy classes. It's why I've never done memberships. I've thought about doing memberships for this show in the future and having some extra content, but we'll see how that develops over time. There's still that possibility, maybe even this year, but we got to see how things are going. Also, you can click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way, buy a book plate. If you want my autograph on one of my books, great way to do that. And uh, you can purchase my books wherever books are sold online. The latest two are The Jeffersonian Tradition and Southern Scribblings, both good books. Uh, you want to get those. Uh, also, you can click on that shop tab, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff, T-shirts, uh, skins for your electronic devices, wall clocks, coffee cups, uh, she- uh, blankets. I mean, all kinds of cool things. You can get my logo, notebooks, all kinds of cool stuff. I'm serious. It's really awesome what you can get from these things. So uh, think about that as well. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like the podcast. Share it around on social media. That's vital. Get people interested in the podcast. Hey, if you're interested in it, maybe they'll be interested in it. We get people thinking locally and acting locally. And we change this whole thing. Right? Organic growth is the best growth. And always send me those show requests because, again, I do read your emails. It's hard for me to respond to everything. I do read your emails. Um, but send me those requests because I do appreciate input. And in fact, today we're doing a listener-generated episode. So we're going to talk about David Barton again. And what I'm going to do with David Barton, look, if, if you don't know who David Barton is, David Barton is uh, the historian for the Glenn Beck program. And Barton lives in Texas. He is the founder of what's called Wall Builders. He has already been shown to be a plagiarizer. His history is, is um, suspect, to say the least. But Barton is a Christian nationalist, and not just that, he is a union-loving Christian nationalist. In fact, he thinks the sun rises and sets with Abraham Lincoln. Just like Alan Gelzo, I'm sure he wakes up every day, genuflects to a statue of Lincoln, spreads holy water on him, and then goes along his day. That's David Barton. The problem is David Barton doesn't see what he's actually doing to America. He complains about all the things happening to the central government, all the things, but yet, well, we got to just live with it because 
the nation, the nation, the nation, the nation. He wrote a piece in, I think it was 2016, for his website, Well Builders. Let me, let me go um, here. Let's see. It was, I don't have the date here. But the title is Limiting and Overreaching Federal Government is State Nullification Solution, a Constitutional Analysis. So David Barton now is the constitutional scholar. Uh, and <laughs> this is, it's very funny to me. Because he's not really a constitutional scholar, and I'm going to tell you, there's all kinds of people that know, even amateurs, that know a lot more about the Constitution than David Barton. But David Barton is someone who has made a lot of money because of who the people he's gotten involved with, again, someone like Glenn Beck, and because of speaking to her and other things. This is what he's done. And he is the public face of conservative history in America. It's disastrous. I'm just going to be honest. It's disastrous. And it's only telling half the story. Now, the thing I want to focus on in this piece is where he gets into in his, his defense of his position with nullification. That in 1798 and 1799, the founding generation was completely against nullification. That's the part I want to focus on for this. There's a whole bunch of other garbage in this piece. But I want to focus on this part right now. I could do probably a whole week just on this piece because there's other things that are so so awful in this thing. But this one part of it is hilarious to me because Barton doesn't know anything that he's talking about here. Now, one thing I'll say is, okay, he wrote this maybe before some of this other information had come out. And look, I've said the same thing. I said this, some of the same things in 2009 in a sentence in my Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers kind of along the same lines, so though not as, um, as strong as Barton is doing here. But this information that I'm going to talk about today wasn't out yet. So when you, when you say these things, you better make sure you're up to date on some of the things that have, been, that have been written now recently about this particular issue of nullification. And what I'm going to... What I'm going to get into here is how accepted nullification was, or the idea of it was, in 1798 and 1799. So what Barton says is, look, okay, so we have the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions, and what they wanted to do was call the attention to these unconstitutional laws, which he even agrees, I mean, look, particularly the Sedition Act, unconstitutional. And... um, he thinks that these things were purely there to get people discussing these things and to have a collective action against the center. The problem with that is this, number one. Uh, first of all, the idea that Madison was being uh, coy about this and toning down the language, it was a little less uh, in your face in the Kentucky Resolution doesn't matter. As Kevin Gutzman's pointed out in a new piece at Law and Liberty, James Mad- Madison Politico just came out uh, a few days ago. Um, he, he talks about how, well, I mean, everyone understood that what Madison was saying was the exact same thing that Jefferson was saying, but the language was a little different. And that's because the person that presented it, even in Virginia, was w- completely in line with what Jefferson was saying in the Kentucky Resolutions. They just didn't think it mattered. It's just like saying expressly delegated and delegated. They're the same thing. 
This is what people said. Well, we don't need to put expressly in front of delegated because we all know delegated means expressly delegated. It's redundant. So what what uh, Barton is doing here is splitting hairs. And this is what people will do. Well, Madison wasn't really in the same page with Jefferson. Yes, they were. They were 100% on the same page in this particular issue. And Madison was on, on the same page with Jefferson because Madison was there during the ratification process, and he understood how the Constitution was ratified. Even Barton recognizes that, well, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, the, these people that are saying things, they're right, they're right about the Constitution. They're right that it had, you know, limited powers and uh, that it would, that's how it's going to be interpreted. They're right about all this stuff. But nullification, the founders didn't agree with nullification. So here's what he says, and I'm, I'm going to, Read right from his piece. He says, Significantly, Virginia and Kentucky had not sought to act alone as individual states. To the contrary, they submitted their proposal to the other states for their approval and joint action. But the other states, upon receiving those nullification resolutions, soundly condemned them. That's a lie. That's a complete lie. In fact, what he points to are three states. Massachusetts, Vermont, and New York. And we know that New England did denounce these resolutions. Why? The question is why. Was it because it wasn't what they thought the Constitution meant? No. Because we know in just a few short years they're going to dust off the same darn thing when it comes to the War of 1812. And of course, Barton points this out, but yet he misses the point. He talks about, well, Daniel Webster gave one of the best speeches ever, and this speech is the quintessential speech because he talks about the union and nationalism. Daniel Webster was making these exact same arguments in 1812. In his speech in 1812, he says the exact same things. So this wasn't because they didn't believe it. It's because the Federalists were in power, and the Federalists controlled Vermont and Massachusetts and New York, and the Federalists didn't like the fact that these Democratic Republicans, or Republicans, were sticking it in their face, and they wanted to control elections. That was the whole point of the Sedition Act, to ensure that the other side would not win the next election. That was the point. How do we know this? Well, because there's new research that's come out uh, in this particular way. And this new research uh, was is written by Wendell Bird. He has a book out entitled Criminal Descent. But he published two articles about it, two, uh, two articles in scholarly journals. And this is what Goodsman says, and he's exactly right. He says, thanks to Wendell Bird's criminal descent, the relevant findings of which were published in a scholarly journal years ago, we now also know that Virginia and Kentucky were not isolated in their stand in 1798. They had the formal support of the legislatures of Georgia and Tennessee, besides one house of North Carolina's, and would have had that of South Carolina's if the Virginia resolutions had reached it prior to the last day of that year's session. So essentially... The South was in favor of the Virginian-Kentucky resolutions. So what we have here is a situation where we have sectionalism and we have different views of the Constitution. Now, what 
Barton would say, oh, okay, but that's all about slavery then. These are all slave owners, and the slave owners are going to rally around this. These things have nothing to do with slavery in any way whatsoever. In fact, as Gutzman points out in this piece at Law and Liberty, uh, William Branch Giles was floating secession. Now, I will say this. Nathaniel Macon, who is certainly a member of the founding generation in North Carolina, he said, well, look, this idea of nullification is stupid. It's stupid because if you don't like what's going on in the Union, just leave it. We're not going to have this whole thing of you know, trying to resist. from the, Just get out of the Union. In other words, just secede. Secession is something we should be doing, not nullification. So Giles uh, was certainly in line with uh, this idea of Macon's of just leaving. And the, and the man that presented the Virginia resolutions in the House of Delegates was John Taylor of Caroline. I mean, this is a guy that, uh, of course, in 1794 was approached by New England politicos about secession. Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King said, hey, John, should we just leave? John Taylor wrote about it. He was shocked. Not that he didn't think it was possible, but that he didn't think that was the right thing to do then. That wasn't right then. The point in all this is that Madison, Jefferson, clearly leaders in the southern states believed in a federal republic that had a federal republic that had uh, the power from the bottom up to oppose central authority. They had the power to do it. And I I don't think that the sedition law was applied in Virginia or Kentucky. They just didn't do it. So they essentially nullified it in those states. They might have asked the other states to do it. They They didn't get it off the books. That was the whole point. You see, Calhoun's position was to go a little further. Well, if we oppose it in South Carolina, it's no longer valid in any state. That's not what Madison and Jefferson were essentially saying. They're saying it's really... No, no law in our state, so we're just going to invalidate it. Barton's afraid of this. This is disastrous because oh, what happens if you had offshore drilling in one state and the other state said you're not going to have offshore drilling? Um, yeah, that's called federalism. <laughs> so, okay. Barton is completely clueless about what he's doing. This is the whole point why, why nobody should listen to David Barton. David Barton is a disaster for history, and he's a disaster for conservatives who are interested in American history because David Barton is going to give you a load of garbage. The other thing that I found interesting about uh, Byrd's work is that the common idea that there were just about 10 people arrested under the sedition law is completely false. In fact, there were many more arrested under the sedition law by John Adams' uh, uh, attorney general, Pickering. So um, this is really interesting because if, uh, if this is the case, then the sedition law was applied wholesale. So why would these people be against it? And they were being arrested for all kinds of things, for basically opposing the Federalists. Imagine the censorship in this. So what Jefferson and Madison are trying to do is block that from happening. They're taking a manly stand against tyranny from their own central government. It doesn't matter if it's elected or not. Their own central governments become tyrannical. Well, how do you stop it? Well, we know that in 1765, they stopped it through 
not enforcing the Stamp Act. In fact, Edmund calls it nullification in his book, The Stamp Act Crisis. It's just nullification. They just nullified it. They just weren't going to enforce it anymore. They're not going to do it. It's the American tradition. This is where Barton misses politics. He just thinks, well, the founding fathers said this in these states. These legislatures were opposed to it. Why, dummy? Why were they opposed to it? Well, because it's politics. Why would Lincoln, who at one point said he was in favor of secession by 1861, say he's not in favor of secession? Well, because he knows if the South leaves and he's left with the United States, guess what? Lincoln serves four years and he's out and the Republicans get crushed, get crushed in the 1862 election. There's no way they win unless there's a war. There's no way. There's no way they win unless they can say, hey, we're waving the bloody shirt. You, you vote for the Democrats, you're voting for the guy that shot this guy, and uh, you're voting for traitors. That's the only way they win. If the issues of slavery extension are off the table, which it would have been at that point, no question about it, it would have been off the table. If, the, if, the, if it all came down to, again, political economy and some of the other things that were you know, important issues, if that was all it was, and you didn't have this moral righteousness which, of course, was a surface thing, right? I mean, the, the rhetoric behind it was, was incendiary. But if you didn't have any of that rhetoric, and it just came down to the nuts and bolts of things again, the Republican Party gets absolutely annihilated in the 1862 elections. Lincoln only got 39% of the popular vote to begin with. Only 39% of the people in America believed in Lincoln's message. So Lincoln's crushed, he's out, the Republicans are out, and you know what? They lose perpetually. So Lincoln could choose party or he could choose union, and he chose party because he hoped by winning the war they would become ascendant, and that's exactly what happened for a brief time when they had the military to control the South. Once the South was allowed to do what it wanted, well, then the Democrats took back over, and this nationalist ideology faded in the background, at least for a time, until we get to uh, the early 20th century. But this is what I found so fascinating about David Barton. The man is so narrow in what he does. And of course, he cites Eliot's debates. Look, other states were in line with this too. Other states were doing this. He also brings up, of course, the whiskey tax uh, that uh, when parts of Pennsylvania revolted against the whiskey tax, President Washington personally led the military against them to demonstrate that the federal authority as constituted by all the states prevailed over the regional predilections of just one or two states. As Washington affirmed, America was an indissoluble union of the states under one federal head and that the glorious fabric of our independency and national character must be supported. Right, So he cites that as saying, well, this is George Washington. This is George Washington. He wrote that in 1783. Okay, <laughs> not during the whiskey insurrection. In fact, Hamilton was the one pushing for that, and Washington was trying to put on the brakes at least a little bit. But I talk about this in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. I get into how bad that actually was. But you have to remember, in that particular episode, who was against it? Well, the governor of Pennsylvania, by, by God. Mifflin, who was actually part of the ratification, part of the Philadelphia Convention, part of the ratification process, he said, you have no authority to march in. Who else was against it? Oh, the guy that 
David Barton says was an arch nationalist and supported one union and that the states can't do this. That would be John Jay, who as Supreme Court Chief Justice said, you can't go, you can't invade Pennsylvania. You can't do that. There's no authority to do it. But Hamilton was pushing it. You see, Barton tells you only a smidgen of the story to make his position seem airtight. But he's not getting into the whole story. Yeah, Hamilton didn't think that the states could do any of this. Washington wasn't so sure. Randolph, his attorney general, said, you can't do this. Jefferson said, you can't do this. So you've got a Supreme Court chief justice. You've got attorney general. You've got Jefferson. You've got the governor of Pennsylvania all saying, no. You know who gave Washington the authorization? Well, James Wilson, the nationalist from Pennsylvania, was also on the Supreme Court. But James Wilson, who never met any national issue he didn't like. So this is the important thing to understand about David Barton. He tells you a smidgen of the story to make his position seem valid, to make his position seem airtight, to make his position seem warranted. But he's not telling you the whole story because if he did, his position would fall down like a house of cards. It's not accurate to say the founding generation was against nullification. It was sectional. This is the other thing with the, he brings up the Webster uh, Hain debate, and he says, well, Daniel Webster, I mean, this is what Americans thought. Not so fast. In fact, there's a piece at the Abbeville Institute by Scott Trask, and this is a piece he wrote when he was in graduate school. He went out and looked at the public reception to the Webster Hain debate, and what he found was that certainly there were nationalists who thought Webster won the debate, but you had just as many people, if not more, who thought Hain won the debate in the press and in public statements that Hain won that debate. We don't get that because Webster, of course, becomes the champion of the Union, the champion of the nation, and that's the side that won ultimately in the war. But it doesn't mean he won the day. In fact, you can go back and read these speeches, and then you read the, the debate between Webster and Calhoun, and Calhoun absolutely thrashes him. Webster loses those debates. And which Daniel Webster are you going to, going to believe? The Daniel Webster of then or the Daniel Webster of 1812, where he's making the exact same arguments, when uh, when the argument suited his section that we need to have nullification. Which one? Which Webster are you going to believe? Richard Current's little biography of Daniel Webster is so good. And then you've got Albert Taylor Bledsoe, Webster versus Webster. It is one of the best things ever, because he points out all the inconsistencies here. Wait a second, which Webster are we getting? Is it the Webster that believed in states' rights? Is it the Webster that believed in nullification? Is it Webster that attended the Hartford Convention, which, by the way was a secession convention, ultimately. They just presented amendments, so they, but they, they supported nullification. Which, which Webster do we believe? Is it that Webster, or is it the Webster that stands up because at that point, then the tariff benefited New England and his constituents, and so he's for it. The tar- in 1812, he's against the embargo because it's crushing New England shipping. Most of his people were uh, shipping. They, they had uh, commercial activities, and so the tariff was destroying them. So who is it and what are we listening to here? And I think that's the whole key to understanding David Barton and what he tells you about American history. He has an agenda, a clear agenda. Lincoln's right. The Union's right. It's all about poor. It's all about evil slave owners trying to control everything. He's a Christian nationalist. His wall builders group or his wall builders organization in terms of history is absolutely pathetic when it comes to real history. And I mean, there's no other way to say it. They're pathetic. 
We know his book on Jefferson was a joke. Uh, I mean, just awful. It was pulled by the publisher because it was so bad. Uh, and it was, I mean, called out. And so this is this is the problem with David Barton. He manipulates, he cherry picks, he does things to suit his interpretation of events, and they don't necessarily tell the whole story. I'm telling you, there were people in the North that were opposed to nullification in 1798, 1799, and 1800. No doubt about it. Because it didn't work for them politically. But it did work for them in 1812. In the Hartford Convention in 1815, it worked for them. It just didn't work then. So what he's trying to say, and of course, by the way, a lot of the people that were involved in that were founding fathers. Oliver Ellsworth was a secessionist. Rufus King was a secessionist. You know where they were? They were in the Philadelphia Convention. They were, they were part of the ratification process. Ellsworth was one of the main figures. If you take my originalist papers class at McClanahan Academy, you'll get this. Ellsworth was important, right? He was an important proponent of the Constitution. This is a man that favored secession. Pickering, very important guy in the Adams administration, later favored secession of New England. So nullification too. So wait a second here. You know, which one was it, Barton? It all came down to power and politics and who was in control of the government. That's what you have to understand with all this stuff. So we've never really had consistency, particularly out of New Englanders. I would say Southerners were more consistent than New Englanders in adhering to these things. And there were times they weren't. But I would say that's the case. And this is why the Southern tradition is so important. By the way, just to mention that, if you want me five times a week, go get the Abbeville Institute podcast. Rate, review, and subscribe to that podcast as well. I do that podcast once a week. Uh, and I talk about what goes on at the Institute and some things that are different from here. And I often save some things for there that I don't do here. So um, you want to get that podcast too. It's a great podcast. And um, it's uh, we want more people listening to that one too. We want to promote that that Southern tradition as well. So anyways, hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.